Father, we would ask that you would help us to have the right attitude, the right outlook on the remaining time we have in this world. Whatever life may bring according to your will, we can be satisfied with that, knowing that you are in control. And for Jesus, your son, our Messiah, who came 2,000 years ago and presented himself just as your word says, we have many reasons for hope, many reasons to be optimistic. And as we get into your word, I pray that you would help us to be those types of people that can communicate the optimism that is in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this is Sunday, or Palm Sunday, and you have to ask the question, well, what is Palm Sunday? Now, this is one of the years I didn't cut down palm leaves and bring them in and, and set them up everywhere. And what happened on Palm Sunday? We know that Jesus... was on a a donkey, the colt, the foal of an ass is what the King James says, and he rode that into the city of Jerusalem. And his disciples went and got it, and it was all prearranged. We don't know how God did it, but he probably communicated to the people that owned the little donkey and, and let them know that the disciples would be coming to get it. And so as Jesus was going up, they were saying, Hosanna in the highest, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were taking the palm fronds, probably date palms, the fronds, and putting those down or waving them, laying their cloaks in the street because they received him as the Messiah, the common people did. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they did not receive Jesus as the Messiah. And this was prophesied in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. I repeat this verse Every Palm Sunday, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, and the colt on the foal of a donkey. And so it was prophesied that Jesus would do this, and every single Palm Sunday, at least I checked for the last eight years, I've been giving you this information out of Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, verse 25 says, No one understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes. There will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens, which is a total of 483 years. And it will be built in a, <clears throat> excuse me, with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After sixty-two sevens, a total of 434 years, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. But the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. I believe that refers to Titus in 70 AD. The end will come like a flood, and he jumps to the end. He goes from 70 AD all the way to the end. says, the end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. This is referring to the final Antichrist. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So this is the time frame that we were given when the anointed one would come and then he would be cut off. And Sir Robert Anderson, in his book, The Coming Prince, he investigated this and he determined from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And by the way, there were four decrees that were given. One was given by Cyrus. He made a decree giving Ezra and the Babylonian captives permission to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. That was in 538. Darius made a decree giving Ezra the right to rebuild the temple in 517. Artaxerxes gave permission to Ezra to have permission for safe passage and supplies to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. So three times 
A decree was given that they could rebuild the temple, but the final one given by Artaxerxes to Nehemiah was to rebuild the city of Jerusalem with streets and a trench. That's the one you go to. That's the one Sir Robert Anderson went to. And he calculated out and he went through all the calendars and he had determined that Jesus's we call, call it the triumphal entry. By the way, when was the last time you saw a lamb on a donkey with a triumphal entry? You think about that, you think of a king coming on a steed, a horse coming in. But Jesus, who is the lamb of God, have you ever seen any warnings on any pasture lands that say, warning, violent lambs? <laughs> You haven't seen that at all. And Jesus is the Lamb of God, but he was triumphal. And we call it the triumphal entry. I think he was just fulfilling the scripture here that tells us that at 173,880 days, that was the time frame to the day that Jesus would present himself at Jerusalem. It was prophesied, not only Zechariah 9, 9, but also Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 and beyond. And so we have this hope that, Wow, there's something going on here. God made this plan. Why is Palm Sunday so important? It shows us, number one, that God's real. He wrote this down through his prophets, and he wanted us to pay attention to it that would happen in the future, that Jesus would present himself. And not only would he present himself, but he would do so in a particular fashion, on a little donkey. Also, it shows us that God's word is true. You can trust it. You can't possibly know what you're going to do tomorrow you think you know but it could very easily be interrupted recently i had somebody a young man 17 years old pull out in front of me on a rainy day i have no idea i could not stop i my foot went through the firewall into the engine to try to get the vehicle to stop and i wasn't successful i probably hit him going at five miles per hour by the time the the vehicle was slowing down and I hit him and it knocked his vehicle and and he got I go why did you pull out the guy behind me comes around and goes man he pulled out right in front of you I was going yeah that's exactly what he did and I was just gonna go home I I was not counting on being in an accident my time frame for that day changed and that can happen to any one of us our time frame during a day can change. Although we make plans, the, the Lord tells us that the plans of the heart belong to man, but the Lord determines the steps. He determines where we're going, what we're doing, what we're going to see, who we're going to talk to, all of those things. So we know that God's word is true. He is in control. He predetermines what's going to happen in our lives for our benefits. And even those things which we consider bad are working together for good, Romans eight twenty eight. We know that from scripture. So God's word is true. It also shows us that there's a future hope. God made plans way in ancient times. You know, our time frame, we look at this world and we go, it's now, it's here. And there have been billions of people that have existed and we don't even think about them. We have a few maybe that we go back in history and we think about or we read their stuff and, and that's it. But even before the flood, there were probably hundreds of millions of people, maybe even billions of people that have existed. But our time frame is limited to now. We only see now, but God says, no, I know what's going to happen in the future. I'm going to tell Daniel about it. Zachariah is going to write about it. All this stuff is going to happen way in the distance, and it gives us a future hope. God knew that we would need this hope to hold on to, to remain optimistic. 
Also, it shows us that God keeps his promises. He said it would happen. He fulfilled it. Has anyone in here never broken a promise? Guilty sinners, everyone that is in here. We have all broken promises at some point. God doesn't break his promise. He is 100% accurate on every single promise. He fulfills it. It just happens. And so we turn to God and go, wow, you keep your promises. You, you promised to save us if we asked you to. And we see the track record. He is still going to do that. It also shows us that we do not need to despair when things get tough. When things get really bad, you can be the optimist. Remember we, I talked about uh, Paul in the Philippian jail. And how it was probably lice infested, uh, human waste probably in there. He was shackled to the wall. And what does he do? Praise God from whom all... He starts singing in the midst of all of that. If I was in prison, I wouldn't be singing. I, I I would say, woe is me. I am completely undone. What have I done to get in this kind of place? But Paul, you know, he's excited. Him and Silas singing together. Now, with all this, since we have all this information, we look back on it and we can calculate when Jesus said, or when God the Father, or excuse me, when Daniel was enlightened to when Jesus would show up and reveal himself as the Messiah, we can look back on Scripture and we can know exactly when that happens. Now, the Jews had this information as well. Why didn't they recognize the time of Jesus' coming? Scripture told them when he would come. When Jesus was born, you know, there was an inquiry made, where would the Messiah be born? And they said in Bethlehem. They knew the Scriptures, at least the Sadducees, the Pharisees. They knew what the Scriptures contained as far as prophecy was concerned. So shouldn't the Jewish people have recognized that this was the Messiah? They had the Old Testament law. They had Daniel. They could clearly see it. From what was there, before I get into that, literacy. What do you think the literacy rate in California is? You don't have to say, but just think about it a minute. How many people are proficient at reading and writing in California? By the way, California is the lowest of all the states in the nation for literacy. 76% approximately, that's the literacy rate, that 76% of the people can read and write at a 7th to 8th grade level. Guess what state is next lowest, next to lowest? New York is next to lowest at 77.9% literacy rate. (laughs) If you had to guess what the next two states are, it's Florida and Texas in that order. Florida is 80% and Texas is 81%. Compared to the rest of the world, that is really good. The rest of the world is at about a 2% literacy rate. Most of the world cannot read and write their languages and comprehend what they're reading, that type of thing. Now, the best states, what state do you think would have the best literacy rate? I was actually surprised. New Hampshire at 94%. 94% of the people are literate, literate in New Hampshire. Then it's Minnesota. Minnesota Minnesota is the next state in line, 94% as well, in North Dakota, and then Vermont. Now, the reason I believe they're quite literate 
is because it's so cold you never want to come out and you have to find something to do when it's snow blowing and drifts that are 15 feet high, you know. So that's why they're inside. That's why they're literate. You know, you go to California. Nobody's inside in California. Everybody's outside, either at the beach or the mountains or farming or doing something which is out there. New York, they just don't care in New York. You know, there's some problems there, uh, the liberal enclave that New York is, and we can see why it'd be so low. But there is a 4% non-literate rate in the United States, only 4% of the people cannot read or write. Actually, I think that's high. It, it shouldn't be 4%, but it is. <clears throat> now, I, I'm giving you all this information to lead you to something. What about countries? Countries that have a 100% literacy rate. You'd be surprised. How about Cuba? Cuba has a 100% literacy rate. Luxembourg, Poland, Finland, all of that, those countries. And there were several other, Latvia, Estonia, some of the Eastern blocs. They all read, mostly. They can all write, 100%. And there's several countries. The United States is way down on the list when it comes to literacy as far as the countries of the world are concerned. But what about Jews in the time of Jesus? Since they had the scriptures... How many Jews were literate? How many Jews could read the scriptures? There's actually people that have done investigation in this. One guy that I was reading, he said, you know, it's a great question. And he investigated it and come to find out there were records of some cities that had synagogues. And in these synagogues, the way that the language was written, what we were supposed to understand is in the synagogue, they had one person that could read the scroll. One person in a whole village, they could read the scroll. And there was a couple of accounts like that, that there was like one person in the whole town. The literacy rate when they went through both the wealthy and the poor and who could read and who could not read was about 1% to 3% of the population could read, could write, could understand what's being written. And so you look at that and you think, well, how did the Jews miss it if they had the scriptures and the Sadducees and the Pharisees knew this information? They withheld it. They didn't want the people to know that Jesus was the Messiah. Then you have to go to motive. Why? Why would they hold this? They have the word of God. They have the temple sacrifices. They, they're supposed to go to the rest of the world and they would not do it. They actually fought against Jesus being the Messiah. It's no wonder that Jesus was so angry at the priests, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees. You know, in John chapter 1, verse 19, they, this is evidence that they, they knew that the prophet Elijah or the Messiah was supposed to show up. Because the Pharisees, the Sadducees in Jerusalem, they sent emissaries to ask John the Baptist, who are you? We want to know who you are. And this is the account. It says, now this man, John's testimony, when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was, he did not fail to confess, but confess freely, I am not the Christ. So obviously they asked him, are you the Christ? Because they were expecting the Christ. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? 
He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way of the Lord. Now, some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. Now, not the Christ. The Christ they knew from Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. The Christ was going to show up. They knew the exact time. They just had to calculate it out. Why not Elijah? Why aren't you Elijah? Malachi 4, verse 5 says, Elijah must come first. Remember, Jesus said, if you can accept it, John the Baptist comes in the spirit of Elijah. And then the prophet, Deuteronomy eighteen eighteen says, or Moses tells us that there's going to be a prophet like unto himself, which would have been Jesus Christ, who is prophet, priest, and king, would have shown up. So they know what's going on. They're trying to find out, is John the Baptist the guy? Why are you baptizing? Why are you doing this? What do you say about yourself? Who are you? And, of course, he was just the forerunner of the Christ who was coming. So they were definitely expecting the Messiah to show up, but they didn't want anybody to know. Jesus was so, I'm going to use an old English term, wroth with them. You know, the book of Revelation talks about three woes that are coming on the planet Earth. You know how many woes he spoke against the Pharisees? Seven. Seven woes. I'm going to read to you this chapter. It says, then Jesus said to the crowd, this is Matthew 23. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit at Moses' seat. So you must obey and do everything they tell you, but you, but do not do what they do. For they do not practice what they preach. They tie heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide. Remember phylacteries, <clears throat> they're little boxes. God said in the Old Testament to write God's law on your forehead and on your hand. And they took that literally and they make these boxes. These little boxes contain something out of the first five books of Moses. I think there's some specific scriptures. And they put it on their head and they tie it there with leather bands. And so they have this little box that's right there with their prayer shawl covering their head. They walk around with this box. Then they have another one that they put on the wrist. And they also wrap, there's a particular way that they wrap the arms. If you've gone to Israel or go to the Western Wall, I've related this story before, but I went to the Western Wall and I decided when I was going to go there, some people call it the, the Wailing Wall, I decided when I went to Israel, I was going to buy my own yarmulke ahead of time. Yarmulke is the little head covering. And I didn't want to have to use the French fry tray that they, they supply and that you can put that cardboard thing on your head for men before you go to the wall and pray. So I'm walking up to the wall and it's in my back pop, pocket and I whip it out and I stick it on my head. And over by uh, the, the, not the wall, but where these rooms are, this guy is over there with a prayer shawl over his head and he goes, you! And... I look, and he's pointing right at me. And I go, uh, and I look this way to see who he's pointing to. He goes, you, yes, you. And I'm going, oh, great, what did I? Here I'm in a foreign country, I'm in Israel, I'm walking down to the west. I just want to pray, what's he doing? He goes, are you a Jew? And I said, no. 
And he goes, hey, like that, because he wanted to wrap my hands with the phylactery and put it on my head. That's what he wanted me to do. He wanted me to go over there. He wanted to wrap me all up so I could go down. I should have said yes. You know, and then we had to wrap me all up and I would have been down there. But if you look at the Jews at the Western Wall, a lot of them, you can see pictures of them. They have the phylacteries going on there. So that's why he says they, he makes their, or they make their phylacteries wide, which means the bigger the box, the more spiritual, right? He goes on to say, and the tassels on their garments long. They, they also had these tassels. And, and the longer the tassels on your garment, the more spiritual you were. And he says, they love the places of honor at banquets and most important seats in the synagogues. And they love to be greeted in the marketplace and have them call or have men call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi for you have only one master and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father. For you have one father and he is in heaven, nor are you to be called teacher. For you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And then he gets started. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, calls them hypocrites, six times. He also calls them blind guides and snakes and vipers but i'll continue you shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces you yourselves do not enter nor will you let those enter who are trying to verse 15 of chapter 23 woe to you teachers of the law and pharisees you hypocrites you travel over land and sea to win a single convert and when he becomes one you make him twice as much the son of hell as you are Verse 16, woe to you, blind guides, you say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold in the temple, he is bound by an oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by an oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift on the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, who swears by the altar, swears by everything on it. They they would do this in order to get out of an oath. They would swear by something, and then they'd take back their oath, saying, well, you know, but I didn't swear by the gift on the altar. And Jesus says, you, you fools, you blind fools. And he goes on to say, and he who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. He who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Verse 23, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. A gnat was the smallest of unclean things, and the camel was the biggest of unclean things. I just saw this little scientific investigation. They found this fossil of this camel that's bigger than an elephant. The thing was just huge and massive. And Jesus, that's the biggest animal for them at the time, besides an elephant, which I'm sure they knew about. But they'll swallow. And by the way, this is called hyperbole. You strain out a little gnat, but you'll swallow an entire camel. And so he keeps on calling them hypocrites. You blind fools. He goes on to say, Verse 25, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you clean out the inside of the cup and dish, and but inside, excuse me, outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence, blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and the outside 
also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Verse 29, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets so you testify against yourself that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets fill up then the measure of sin of your forefathers verse 33 you snakes you brood of vipers you have to figure what's going on here jesus is in the temple area and the Pharisees show up and they're standing in the back and they're all holy like this and they have their garb on and the common people are either standing or sitting around listening to Jesus. Jesus could have been standing up. He could have been sitting down. But he directs it right at the Pharisees and everybody's just going, ooh, fight, fight, fight. Just going back and forth. And he's just lambasting these guys in the temple area. You brood of vipers. And I'm sure he wasn't going, you brood of vipers. I'm sure he was pointing his finger and just condemning them left and right because of everything that they did was for self-motivational purposes, just to enrich themselves or to make themselves look better in the eyes of people. They were flouting the the, uh, commandments of the Old Testament and just doing whatever they want. And Jesus condemned them. He says, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how long will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in the synagogues and pursue from town to town. Can anyone say Paul the apostle or Saul as he is known as then? And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murder between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth. All this will come upon this generation. Talk about not making friends of your enemies. Jesus just insulted them to the hilt. And I wonder what they did afterwards. Well, I don't have to wonder. We know that they went out and tried to figure out how they're going to kill him great religious men right we're going to kill this guy for insulting us he hurt my feelings and so i have to kill him and and not only that but the hiding of the messiah which was to come condemning them and they were supposed to be the spiritual ones instead of humbling accepting jesus as the messiah they did everything for their own benefit and nothing for those around them all just because they wanted to maintain their power. They knew, and they wouldn't let Jesus be known for who he actually was. Now, where Jesus has a triumphal entry, he comes in on a Sunday, and he has the whole week. If you knew that you had a week to live, they said, you know, you're going to die in a week. And there's actually a Calvary Chapel pastor in Nevada this happened to he wasn't feeling well one day working outside and he went into the doctor and it was like stage four cancer is really bad and within a week he was dead and I, I can't imagine what he told his family or his kids but what would you say if you knew you had one week if you were given that diagnosis now I'm going to speak from a Christian perspective in an ideal situation 
there are things that can be said in a non-ideal situation. And what I mean by ideal is you find out maybe you have a terminal disease, you have time, your family is close, they're not in some faraway place, and you have the ability still to communicate, and so you're going to tell them something. What would you tell them? Well, I think that you would provide, especially for your kids or grandkids, instruction. You would express regret of some kind. Regret maybe on your own part or regret of something that your children or grandchildren had not yet achieved. You would certainly pray for them and you would love them even more. For instance, in legal affairs, you'd probably say, make sure my will is in order. I have a do not resuscitate directive. Make sure you know where all this stuff is. Make sure you know where the insurance is. And for most men, I think that that would be at the forefront. Let's make sure we get this taken care of because I'm leaving and I need to make sure everything is ready for you to lessen the burden that would be on the family. Then you might tell them about what you think they ought to do in the future or what they might avoid. You, you would probably have some time where maybe your children or your spouse would come in and you'd say, you know, things look good over here. Why don't you pursue that? Or why don't you avoid this over here? It's not looking good. You would give some type of counsel if you had the ability. And again, I, I think I'm speaking mostly from the man's perspective. The women, I think, might have a few other things to say. Also, regret. Uh, you might wish that more had been accomplished and, and regret that more wasn't done. And maybe regret that you didn't have more time. I think one of the common rejoinders that I've heard is that People will say, I'm not ready. I I still have things I want to do, things I want to accomplish, experiences I want to go through. You know, I have this bucket list and I haven't finished the bucket list. And so you would probably express regret on that. And then maybe some of your hopes and expectations were not realized in the lives of others as well as yourself. Uh, You would pray probably more than ever before for yourself and for those around you. I think that would be uh, expected, that would be common. And you would hold your spouse more if you were still married. You would speak kindly. Uh, You would want to see your children and grandchildren more during that week. I, I think that those are very average things for the Christian that we would want to do if we knew that we had a week left. Well, Jesus knew that he had a week left. What did he communicate to others from the time of his triumphal entry to the time that he went to the cross? And he knew what he was going to do after the cross. He knew that he would come back and appear to them again. But what would Jesus communicate to others since he knew he only had one week to live? And what would Jesus leave for us who have not seen him? He actually did leave something for us specifically. Well, when it comes to instruction and regret and prayer and love, he said in Matthew chapter 21, verse 18 through 22, and this is during the last week that he was alive on earth. By the way, the gospel of John from chapter 12 all the way to the end, that's Jesus' last week. But here in Matthew 21, verse 18, it says, Early in the morning he was on his way back to the city. He was hungry, seeing a fig tree by the road. He went up to it and found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. 
When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. So he was telling them the benefits of having more faith. Look what you'll be able to do if you have this faith. The fig tree was just the object to get to the truth. It wasn't the fig tree that you're supposed to focus on. The focus of this is if you just have more faith, just think of what you can accomplish for the kingdom. And as you pray, you pray according to God's will, and you have exactly what you ask for. When you don't pray according to God's will, you don't get what you ask for. So many times I think we feel we have unanswered prayers because we haven't received what we've asked for. Well, it's not in God's will. We have a promise that if we pray according to God's will, we have it. And, and that's without faltering or wavering on the promise. God says we have it. So that's number one that Jesus wanted to communicate or one of the things. I, I could have listed two dozen things that Jesus talked about. But also in that same chapter in verse 28, it says, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the, what the father wanted? The first answer, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness. And you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. He's referring here to the importance of repentance. He was pointing to the, the Pharisees who were standing there and he was telling them prostitutes are getting into heaven before you and you're not even going to make it based on chapter 23 that comes just two chapters later here. And, and so repentance is key and there's two ways to look at repentance. One is it's a change of mind. You turn in a direction that was opposite from where you're going. The other is a change in behavior. The change of mind is not perfect. The change of behavior is not perfect. Have you ever doubted that you're saved? Have you ever doubted that God's word is true and, and, and you have that doubt come in and God says, do not doubt, repent of that unbelief. Or have you ever had to repent more than once of a sin? <laughs> over and over and over. And the Lord says, just keep on repenting. How many times does he forgive us if we ask him? As many times as we ask. He just keeps on forgiving. You mean so many times? Can you imagine a couple um, that had an argument and uh, they, get, so they get into this argument and they just say, that's it, I'm done. And the other one says, will you forgive me? No, this is the final straw. You could see that happening. But Jesus never says it's the final straw. He keeps on saying, you just keep asking, keep repenting. And you'll keep on being forgiven. And that's kind of cool, isn't it? Nobody like, is like that on earth unless they have Christ in them. They say, I have my limits. I'm not going to go beyond that. I'm not going to forgive you. Even if you repent, I'm not going to forgive you. So there are benefits to having more faith, the importance of repentance. That's what he communicated to them. Also, 
the importance of accepting and not rejecting Christ, who he is and his teaching. Chapter 21, verse 33 says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized the servants and beat one, killed another, stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time. The tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent a son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir, come let us kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the landowner of the vineyard comes, what will those tenants, or excuse me, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretcheds to a wretched end. They replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him a share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the people who will produce its fruit, who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces but he whom it falls will be crushed then the chief priests and the pharisees heard jesus's parables they knew he was talking about them and they looked for a way to arrest him but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet so all these pharisees had to do when jesus accused them of all of these things all they had to say you know you're right when you're in ministry it's always good to be reflective. If somebody comes up and says, you have done this, or you have sinned against me, or you were wrong in this area, and not just for those in ministry, for all of us, I think there's a good reply to all of that. And it's not, well, you're just wrong. That's not the right reply. The right reply is, you're probably right. I should go back and I should look at that and ask for forgiveness, ask for restoration if a relationship has been interrupted in some way. And so this idea that we would accept Jesus and his teaching and what he did and do not reject him, that's what he left with his disciples in this last week. He also tells us that to love is the greatest commandment. Mark chapter 12, verse 28 says, One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating noticing that jesus had given them a good answer he asked of all the commandments which is the most important the most important one answered jesus is this hero israel the lord our god the lord is one love the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength the second is this love your neighbor as yourself there is no commandment greater than these so love is paramount and it's not the love that the world says is love. You know, when it comes to the gay community, they, they have a phrase. They say, love is love. And it's not. Love is sacrifice. Love is doing the will of God. Love is carrying out acts that would be sacrificial for others, that would benefit them, not just physically here, but in regards to the kingdom of heaven that is what love is. Love is telling somebody that things are wrong. Things are sinful. Love is telling somebody that there is judgment to come. Now, people mostly do not accept that. 
They just want to feel good all the time. They reject any kind of guilt. They reject any type of instruction that would prohibit them from carrying out the behaviors that they so love and they have endured for so long. Most people don't want to change. Somebody called me up this last week and there was an issue around their neighborhood and they wanted to know what I thought about how to approach this particular person. And, uh, of course, I said, well, you know, you, you can always go to management. And it, it was a, uh, an issue of being a nuisance in the neighborhood. And I said, uh, it, and then we talked. I said, well, first you can go to the person. You go to the person first. After that, if you're not getting satisfaction in this little community, you can go to the management. You can talk to the management. But I said, if you go to the management, then it could escalate. Then the person may change, may not change. And if you really want to pursue it more, you have to go to the authorities, the police. And you have to talk to them. And maybe they'll change, maybe they won't. But then you're going to have an angry neighbor. And they're always going to look at you in such a way. So I, I said, those are your options. But start with just going and talking with them, seeing what they have to say. And they were kind of worried about that. They went and talked to the guy. And the guy said, you know, I'm so sorry. I, I didn't know that this was a problem. And he didn't have to go through all of this other rigmarole and, and the difficulty of that. And that was showing love, that it was affecting somebody. The nuisance was affecting somebody. And so the person just said, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry. And that's the proper way to handle it. If you have an issue with somebody, you go to them. You talk to them. That's how God described love to us. We're supposed to communicate. We're not supposed to just shut everything off. The goal of forgiveness is the restoration of relationship. That's what you want. And that's what Jesus was teaching here. So the, the love is the greatest commandment. And not only that, but Jesus prayed for all of us specifically, not just his disciples. In John chapter 17, I'm not going to read the whole thing here. But Jesus, he went to the Father and he was praying for the Father to glorify himself, his son. And he started praying for his disciples that they would have strength, that the Lord would watch over them. But also he said in verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That is you and I. Jesus was praying for us. And by the way, Jesus knows us all by name. He knew who he was praying for. He knew all of your struggles. He knew your difficulties. He knew your disappointments. He knew your failures all before you were even born. And yet he was praying for us. He knew what was going to happen to us. And, and so he stressed that we need to be praying and that Jesus prayed for us and he prayed for the disciples. That's what he was communicating to them. And then regret. Did Jesus have any regret? I think he did not have regret as far as his own self was concerned. He was doing the will of the Father. He always did the will of the Father, Scripture tells us. But Jesus, I believe, had hoped that disciples would be able to stay awake in prayer. You know, when he went to the garden and he was praying in the garden, I'll read it to you here, Luke chapter 22, verse 41. Uh, through 46 says he walked away perhaps a stone's throw knelt down and prayed this prayer father if you are willing please take away this cup of horror from me 
But I want your will, not mine. Then the angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him, for he was in much, uh, such agony of the spirit that he broke into a sweat of blood with great drops falling to the ground as he prayed more and more earnestly. At last he stood up again and returned to the disciples, only to find them asleep, exhausted from grief. Verse 46 has an exclamation point. Asleep? Here he is. He's sweating great drops of blood. An angel has to minister to him. He goes back to his disciples and, asleep. You guys are asleep. Well, the reason that they were asleep is because they were overcome with grief. They knew what was happening and they were weak. And maybe Jesus at that moment, uh, he might have thought something like, I wish I was here a little longer just to help them, to encourage them. You know, maybe regrets. Maybe something wasn't achieved, but... Of course, he was God, and he knew the state of humankind, the failures that we have. And if there is anything that was close to it, maybe that was it. But we see what we would do, or we can reflect on what we would do if we only had a week left, and we see what Jesus did when he only had a week left. But, you know, he willingly went to the cross for what reason? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and its shame. That's for us on Palm Sunday. Even though we look at the news in the state of California, across the nation, across the world, and we say, Lord, come quickly. This needs to end. But for the joy set before us, we endure the pains of this life. We have this message of hope. Jesus was an optimist. When Zechariah 9.9 was written, he told the people of Israel to rejoice greatly because your Messiah has come riding on a donkey, the foal, the colt of a donkey. And so he wanted them to rejoice over it, even though in the next seven days he was going to go to the cross as far as prophecy is concerned. So Jesus, in the last week of his existence here on earth, He encouraged his disciples and he wants to encourage us as well to have faith, to be ready and willing to repent, to accept Jesus and follow him and do not reject his teaching. And we are to remember to love God and each other with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. He also prayed for us specifically that we would be unified and he wants us to stay awake, be alert, and be watchful of what is happening in the world that points to his return and that's Matthew 24 we are in chapter 21 in Matthew and all of that goes to the end the leading up the all of it discourse what's taking place in the end and I've told you for several weeks in in a row he said watch pay attention to what's going on so you're not taken out of the words that you don't have to lose hope you know what's in the future my prayer for you is that you can go away on this Palm Sunday no matter what is taking place around you that you can walk calmly. Have you ever seen those commercials where a person is just standing there and everything in the back is just moving almost at the speed of sound and they're just standing there calmly? We can do that. We can just stand there calmly knowing that we're rooted in Jesus Christ, the one who is the author and finisher of our faith. And we do not need to doubt. We do not need to worry. And he will bring to fruition the salvation that he has given to all of us. Let's pray. Father, I I thank you for Jesus, our Messiah, the one who loved us so much that he gave himself, that we might have fellowship with him and with you by the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, we ask that you would help us to look on the bright side of things, even though there is darkness on the horizon. 
And for the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross. May we have that same joy. May we also communicate it to all those who need it. In Jesus' name, and the church said, please stand.